Luke chapter number 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, he saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when... I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. May his church say amen. I read a famous quote from an engineer who once said that if you do not ask the right questions, you will discover nothing. It's not just about asking questions, it's about asking the right questions if you want to make discovery. Here's a question. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Is that a good question? It's a great question. It's a question I think that every one of us sitting here this morning should be thinking about very, very seriously and, and striving to have that question answered. And Jesus points this lawyer to the answer of that question with a question. He says, well, what does the law say? How do you read God's law? Where's the answer to that question found? Where shall I... How shall I inherit eternal life? The answer is found in the Word of the Lord. God's Word is where that answer is found. And the lawyer correctly cites Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's the first great commandment. And then the second, right, which is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God is an act of love. 
faith in God is an active faith. How do you know if you truly love God? Well, one key indicator is how well do you love your neighbor? Well, why should I love my neighbor? Because you love God. These two commandments go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. One flows directly from the other. We love our neighbor because we love God and we know that we love God, evidented by how much we love our neighbor. And this lawyer realized, oh man, how difficult number two is. Now loving God, you know, in his mind, he's thinking, oh, I've got that, I'm a law-abiding Israelite, you know, I know every letter of the law, I follow it to a T, but now that loving my neighbor part, because loving your neighbor is it's hard, isn't it? Loving people is grueling, it's difficult, it's messy, it's, it's complicated, and, and if he is going to justify himself, if he is going to earn his right to eternal life, if, if, if this man is going to save face in front of the world, then he has to make that second law doable. Right? So he asks Jesus, well, well fine. Who, who is my neighbor? And you can kind of sense behind that there's this, there's this other question, right? Like, Jesus, give me a list of people who you expect me to love like I love myself because I love myself a lot. And if I'm going to love people like I love myself, then, then you need to tell me that they need to be people who look like me, talk like me, act like me, and value the same things I value. Right, Jesus? No. Jesus is going to refuse to allow this man to water down the second commandment. He is not going to drop the standard of God's law. Instead, Jesus is going to keep it as perfect and as holy as it was intended when written. And so, Jesus tells him a parable. You know it, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, friends, does not answer the question, who do I love? Rearrange the first letters of that first word. It's not about who I love. The Good Samaritan parable answers the question, how do I love? Christians, this morning, listening to this, how well does God expect you to love other people? And the first question is obvious. Who do I love? Everyone. The person to your left, the person to your right, behind you, in front of you, that person you're thinking about going to work with tomorrow that you just, whew, mm -mm, not looking forward to it. You have to love them too. How much? I think there are two things emphasized in this parable. Number one, God has called us to love our neighbor in spite of their sin. And number two, God has called us to love our neighbor in spite of the cost. In spite of their sin and in spite of the cost. Let's look at these in turn. So, probably the most striking feature to this parable is, is in the name, right? The Good Samaritan, the the fact that a Samaritan is the hero of this story is a shocker. It's a huge, huge shocker. 
Uh, some have said that the reason that Jesus reverses the, the roles here and that it's a Samaritan hero and not a Jewish hero is because he wanted to shake up from the get-go their preconceived ideas about one another. You see, for the, the Jews to hear, this, to hear this story and to hear about a Samaritan hero in the story would have been disgusting for them. Because the idea, number one, that a Samaritan could be good was bonkers. And number two, the idea that a Jew would need a Samaritan's help was even more bonkers. Just a terrible idea. And, and, and why though? Why so much hate? Why so much vitriol against Samaritans? I think it's important to understand a, a little bit of the history of these people. And we could get into a lot of detail, but to summarize, the Samaritans were an interracial, they were interracial descendants of northern Jews and their Assyrian captors. You'll remember that not long after the death of Solomon, when his son Rehoboam was, was becoming king of Israel, the northern ten tribes separated from the house of David and followed Jeroboam, and then the house of David followed Rehoboam, and the kingdom was from then on divided. And after many, many generations of sin and idolatry, uh, God eventually sold the northern tribes of Israel over into the hands of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were horrible people. They were violent, vicious, nasty. You read the history of the Assyrians, it's appalling to see what they did to people who they captured. But God gives them over into the Assyrians' hands and a lot of people are deported like Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys. Uh, but there were some who remained. And, and those Jews who remained in their homeland eventually intermarried with their Assyrian captors. And with those intermarriages came descendants. Half Jew, half Assyrian. And so, Jews by Jesus' day saw these Samaritans, right? Think about the capital city, Samaria, the northern tribes, Samaritans. They saw these people as half-breed descendants of a rebellious house who were not purely Jews and who had perverted the worship of Yahweh because they refused to worship in Jerusalem. They refused to worship at the temple. And in fact, they rewrote the Torah in order to legitimize them building a temple on Mount Gerizim to worship there instead. The Samaritans. What I want us to understand is that the Samaritans had legitimate sin issues in their lives, in their history. There was deep-seated sin. Jesus is not teaching a parable here and telling us about Jew and Samaritans because He wants to talk about prejudice. You know what prejudice is, right? Prejudice, Webster's would define prejudice as a preconceived judgment or opinion that's not based upon evidence at all or good evidence at all. It's just you hate something because you just don't like it, right? Aladdin, those you Disney fans, right? Aladdin and Jasmine are not supposed to be married because uh, Aladdin is a street rat. Uh, Oliver Twist is hated and despised and is subhuman because simply he doesn't have parents, right? Some of you this morning will gladly kill any snake or spider simply because it is a snake or a spider, regardless of whether or not it's venomous. 
That's prejudice. Some of you are gladly prejudiced against those creatures, aren't you? It's prejudice. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not simply talking about prejudice. Jesus is talking about something much, much deeper. Something maybe even more subtle than prejudice that seeps into every one of us, even Christians. He is talking to us about how we are to love other people in the face of their sinfulness. The Jews had legitimate reasons to be really upset with the Samaritans. The Samaritans truly were a sinful people. But here is the question. What did that sin do to the Jewish people? Where did it drive them? Did it drive them to love the Samaritans and evangelize them and and bring them back into the fold? Is that what it did? Not at all. Not at all. Instead, it drove the Jews to hate in animosity. They despised the Samaritans. It was the height of insult to be called a Samaritan. At one point in the book of John, Jesus is, is, is talking about how God is his Father, and he is the Son of God, and the, and the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees are looking at him and, and are disgusted by these claims. And, and they look at him and they say, aren't we right to say that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Jesus, not only are you a Samaritan, but you're a demon-possessed one. Dude, you're messed up. To be called a Samaritan, you would rather go around Samaria to get to Galilee than you would to go straight through, which is the faster route, because you don't even want to touch your feet on their property. They hated the Samaritans. Friends, when we encounter the sin in other people, when we, when we are in relationships with others, whether they are a believer or, or an unbeliever, we encounter their sin, how do we respond? How do you respond? How do I respond? How do you respond to someone who has different theological views than you, even, even thinking that those theological views are, are true heresy, truly against God's Word? How do we respond to people we disagree with theologically? How do we respond to people in our day and age who have a, who have a different sexual ethic, who, who, who do not believe in the sexual ethics taught in the Scriptures? And you might find that disgusting and appalling, and, and because it's against God's Word, we should. But my question is, how do you respond to that? Do you respond like the Jews did to the Samaritans? How do you respond to that corrupt boss or that nasty co-worker or that lousy employee you wished you had never hired? How do you respond to your friend who stabs you in the back or that spouse who mistreats you at home? How do you respond, Christians, to those who depart from us because they're showing that they were never of us? How do we respond to that? Do we get excited that they're gone? Shockingly, it's the Samaritan in this, in this passage that does the right thing, that, that shows what it is to truly love someone. It's the Samaritan. You know, what if the Samaritan had responded exactly like he had been treated? What if he had looked at that Jew and just been like, man, I have been waiting a long time to see a Jewish guy who needed my help. And if you think I'm going to help you after 
I know how you feel about me. You have another thing coming, buddy. I'm just going to pass by on the other side. But that's not how he responds. Jesus says that the Samaritan responds with compassion. He looks at this man who is, in, who is in need of help, and despite the sins that they had against one another, he said, I am going to save your life. Church, we are not called to ignore sin or sugarcoat sin, not preach against the, the judgment and the wrath of God against sin. Those things must be preached consistently and faithfully. Amen but we should be preaching those sermons through tears. We should be teaching those lessons with the disposition of, I am here to save your life. Jesus himself said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that, right? We are to love for three reasons. In spite of others' sins, we love them because, first of all, God is love. And if you are God's children, then you ought to be loving. And second of all, because He first loved us. And He didn't love us because we were beautiful and sinless and perfect. He loved us in spite of our sin and we are to do the same. Paul gives a whole list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then it's almost like he wags his finger and he says, but before you get too high and mighty, remember such were some of you. And then thirdly, we love because it is through a loving heart that sinners will be saved. It's through a loving heart that sinners will be saved. Jude 22 and 23 says, Have mercy on those who waver. Save some by snatching them out of the fire. Have mercy on others coupled with the fear of God. The fear of God, yes. Reverence for, for God's holiness and preach against sin, yes, but coupled with mercy. We are to love others in spite of their sins. This is hard, I know. You and I need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to live like this, to love like this. My question for us this morning, I've been asking my question, this question all week long. I was talking to our pastor yesterday and told him that this sermon has been kicking my rear end all week long. And the question that I've had to ask myself is, is Jonathan, are you praying to this end. Because if you're not praying to this end, you will not love this way. This is the kind of love that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit in a changed heart. Christians, how well are we expected to love everyone around us? First of all, we love in spite of their sin, but then secondly, we love in spite of of the cost. Loving this Jewish man cost the Samaritan something. It cost him a lot. It cost him security, purity, time, and money. Listen to this. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles, either on foot or on a donkey or a 
camel, right? 17 miles, descends 3,000 feet below sea level. It's a barren land. There's no, hardly no grass or water anywhere. And it was a wonderful place for thieves to hide out in the crevices of the rocks and, and have their lairs, right? And, and when somebody came along by themselves like this Jewish man did, it was, it was prime real estate for thieves to jump out, beat him, rob him, leave, no repercussions. And for this Samaritan to stop and take the time to help this man was putting himself at risk of the same exact fate. He put his own security on the line for this man. It cost him his own, his own cleanliness, his own purity, didn't it? Because he was having to dress this man's wounds. It says that he had to bind his wounds. He had to pour oil and wine, right? He had to pour wine to sterilize these open wounds, wool, uh, oil to soothe them. He had to bind them with probably his own spare clothes. He had to bind this man up. So, I mean, he is literally getting his hands dirty for this man. It was a nasty job. You get into relationships with people. How many of us know that, that relationships can get messy, can't they? Are you willing to get messy to save the life of another. It cost him time. I mean, he had to stop. He had to tend to this man's wounds. He had to load him up on the camel. He had to walk the whole rest of the way. He had another 200-pound man he had to carry down to Jericho. I mean, this took time. Who knows where he had to be? And time is the one thing that you can't get back. You can wash your hands, right? You can, you can get your clothes, some new clothes. You can get money back. You can't get your time back. And so the very thing that he couldn't get, ever get back was the thing he gave, and it was his time. Are you willing to give your time? And then lastly, it cost him his resources. I, he, he paid for a night at the hotel. And then it says before he left, it says he gave the innkeeper two denarii. And according to some estimates, he gave this innkeeper enough money for this man to stay in his hotel for two months. Not just a night stay, right, at a, at a, at a, at a Motel 6 somewhere off the interstate, right? I mean, he, he pays for this man to stay here for two months. And then says to the innkeeper, you know, if you incur any more costs, you put it on my tab, and whenever I come back through, I'll pay you. He didn't give him a limit either. He just said, whatever. It cost him his own resources. You see, this Samaritan shows us that he was willing to love his neighbor in spite of the cost. What about that priest and that Levite, though, right? We hadn't forgot about them. They're great. They're great. Here comes two holy men, right? Fresh from the temple, right? On their way home from church, passing by, and they see this man, their own countrymen, right? This is like their blood, laying in his own blood, half dead on the side of the street, and Jesus just quickly mentions, passed him by. Passed him by. Why? Jesus doesn't tell us why. We can only speculate why. I don't want to speculate too much, but one of the probably most popular thoughts out there is that these guys were worried about ritual purity, right? For them to touch this man who was potentially dead who was certainly covered in blood, to touch his blood, to touch him if he's dead, would have meant that they would have had to go through the whole ceremonial process of becoming clean again. They'd have had to wash in water, they'd have had to make sacrifices, they'd have had to wait for the time, the sun to set and all this stuff. And that was a lot of work. 
A lot of work. Too much. Too much cost for us, they say. Let's be fair. Some have said, well, maybe they were on their way to the temple. They're on their way to the temple. And if they're on the way to the temple to serve in the temple, they can't be unclean. And so if the temple service is going to go on, they have to remain clean. But look what Jesus says. Jesus is very specific. It says, Jesus says that they were on their way down that road. Remember, I said 17 miles descending in sea level. So they're on their way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They had already finished at the temple. They were done with temple service. So to touch this man would have been inconvenient, yes, but would it have been impossible? No, it just simply boils down to they were more consumed with their own worldly prosperity, their own time, money, cleanliness, than they were to help this man. Is there anything wrong with prosperity in the world? No, there's nothing wrong with being prosperous. The problem is, is whenever our prosperity, whenever, whenever the stuff that we're working for here and now, when that becomes the ultimate thing, when that becomes the number one thing, that is when prosperity becomes a problem. Friends, please hear me. Living for the now is important. Living for the, I'm not saying that we should be thinking and, 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 and worried about the future. We should be living in the present. Yes, we are called to live in the present, but not the present alone. You and I are called to consider how is how is what I'm doing right now affecting eternity? How is what I am doing right now affecting the kingdom of God whenever I'm gone from this world? And if you, the decisions you're making have negative or no impact positively on the kingdom of God and and the eternal souls of your neighbors, then you are living for the wrong thing. You're living for the wrong reasons. How does right now touch eternity? Are you holding back investing in someone because it is too expensive, too inconvenient, or too uncomfortable? Have you built castle walls around yourself so high, so thick, so bolstered that nobody gets in and nobody gets out? Somebody else will do it. Somebody else will come by and help the poor guy. I've got too much to worry about. Is that how we're living this morning? If you were the Jewish man, or if I, if I was that Jewish man sitting on the side of the road, I, I, I think that I would be hoping beyond hope for a good Samaritan. I would be hoping that somebody would, would take the time to save my life. And the question that I want to ask myself is, am I willing to be that good Samaritan that somebody else is hoping for somewhere in God's providence where He leads me? That's the question for us this morning. Are we loving in spite of our cost and in spite of their sin? Because don't forget, it's all God's time and money anyway. And you and I are sinful as well. 
and aren't walking around guiltless. Francis Bacon, the English philosopher, he said that a prudent question, a good question, is one half of wisdom. One half of being wise is asking the right questions. The lawyer asked a bad question. I'm glad that Jesus answered the right one for him. Jesus follows up with one more question. He says, Which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to him who fell among robbers? And the lawyer, perhaps reluctantly, feeling a little pained, says, I guess it was the one who showed him mercy, Lord. And Jesus looks at him and he says, You go and do likewise. In the Greek... The word order is different. The first word in the sentence is go. First thing Jesus says, looks at him, he says, go. Do the same thing. He says, go, love like the Samaritan did. Go, love like you are driven by the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians, go, love others like Someone else we know who was willing to empty himself and make himself of no reputation. But took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Go love like that. For a good person, there might be somebody out there who would be willing to die for a good person. Maybe, says the apostle. But Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, His enemies. Go love like Jesus would love. Go love like Jesus taught us to love. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I've never been loved like that. I've never been loved. Nobody in this world has ever loved me like that. My friend, you are looking in all the wrong places for a love just like that. Jesus is setting the bar to perfection and He is the only one who has ever loved just like that. Perfectly selfless, regardless of the cross, in spite of sin, come, my friends, and be accepted by a love like that. A great cost to Himself, Christ came to save sinners from sin and death. My call to you today is to come and receive that free gift of grace and love through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that we fall so short of this standard of perfect love. And so, Lord, when our hearts are overwhelmed, lead us to the rock that is higher than us. Lead us to Jesus who loved perfectly. He loved us in spite of our sin. He died for our sins and He has redeemed us from our sins. And Lord, You have loved us regardless of the cost. Train our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit to begin to emulate that kind of love. Sanctify us in this way, O Lord, and make us more and more like our Savior. 
This we ask in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.